Welcome to the podcast, Ethics and Etiquette, a thought-provoking discussion about everyday dilemmas. I'm your host, Marna Ashburn, here with wife, mother, and attorney, Kelly Halligan-Zimmerman. Hi, Kelly. Hello. Hi, everybody. And Mike Derrick, a retired Army officer, combat vet, and father of four. Good morning, Mike. Hey, good morning, Marna, and good morning, Kelly. So nice to have you both here with me. Our goal here is to offer you insights and perspectives on sticky situations that will help you examine your choices and exercise your own ethical muscles. Today, we've got three scenarios that roughly fall under the topic of home ownership. The first one is from a listener. Thanks for writing in. She writes, Here's a recent, somewhat COVID-related ethical moral dilemma I've encountered. Back on April 17th, and it's May 31st today, so this has been a while, I arranged for a pool repair company to come and do some diagnostics regarding a leak that I thought might be present. He arrived late after I called him because he wasn't there at the agreed-upon time. That should have been my first clue. While he was there, he was full of confidence that he could help me and also do some of the other pool renovation work I needed. He said he could start the following Monday, the 20th, and asked for $1,500 down. Given my recent past experience with pool tradesmen who are in short supply in my area, I was eager to jump on his availability and gave him a check for the agreed upon amount. He cashed the check on Monday the 20th, but did not begin work. I texted. He apologized. I'll be there Thursday the 24th. April 24th, he texts. Sorry, we're shorthanded. I'll be there the 27th. The 27th, he texts. Shorthanded. I'll be there on the 30th. April 30th, at 11 a.m., they haven't arrived, so I inquired what time I should expect them. Wrapping up another job, be there between 2 and 4 p.m. No show, no call, nothing. At this point, I decided to move on to someone else and didn't contact them again. I heard nothing at all from him. On May 19th, I texted him and said that since I hadn't heard from him in three weeks, that I had given the job to someone else and to please remit the deposit of $1,500 to my home address. No response. So, in these times of economic hardship, she writes, I feel guilty about pursuing the money from someone who is probably less financially secure than me. What should I do? And Kelly, you're the legal expert on the panel. Let's start with you. Sure. Thanks, Marna. This almost sounds like a scam. Uh, you, you have somebody that it knows. does. Yeah, I mean, it really does. You have somebody that knows that these types of tradesmen are in short supply. They manage to get this significant deposit. I mean, $1,500 is a lot of money. So from a legal perspective, what I would say is caveat emptor, which is Latin for buyer beware. And it's a principle of contract law. And it means that the burden is on the purchaser to protect themselves and perform necessary due diligence. So it's unclear to me if our listener called this company because she had recommendations or there were reviews online. But nonetheless, you don't give anyone money until you enter into some type of written contract. And it doesn't have to be anything fancy, but when it comes to workmen, you want to have some type of a contract and you don't pay until the contract is signed and you never pay in full until the job is completed to your satisfaction. And what you have in writing should define the work or the project. It should make it clear like what materials are going to be used, you know, what are the specifics or the particulars of the project with regard to the pool, and you want some type of a guarantee or a warranty with regard to the workmanship or the materials or sometimes each separately. 
Um, the other thing you'd want to do is get two or three quotes. And I understand that in the listener's area, there aren't a lot of pool repairmen or they're not available. But nonetheless, I would recommend you, you be patient. I mean, she did find somebody else. You be patient and you get a couple of quotes then you enter into something in writing. Then you give a partial deposit once it's signed by both parties. And then when the work is completed, you then pay to your satisfaction that you then pay the remainder due. What should she do now? She's in a very tough situation. Again, no matter how well off she is, this is a lot of money. And, you know, she's not a charity organization. She may want to use the money or he may want to use the money to donate to a charity organization that's legitimate or to their church. It, it almost is larceny. It's almost criminal, really, because the person just took the check and that was it. I mean, they never showed up. They never did anything. So I would even recommend that you contact the police. Uh, the police, is they're probably going to say, look, this is a civil matter. Um, we can't help you. But to me, they took the money almost with an intent to permanently deprive the person of the money. So I would start with the police. If the police aren't willing to get involved, I would then, you know, contact a lawyer or, you know, he or she could write a letter themselves to the the company or whatever, the individual, and give them a very short period of time to, you know, send them a cashier's or certified check for the money owed. And if they don't, I would tell them, you know, that you're going to hire a lawyer, you're going to contact the Better Business Bureau, and whatever other actions you're going to take, because, you know, there are ways that you can review the business and make it clear to others and help others in the future from being taken advantage of. Yeah, there was no mention of a contract in her email. Yeah, and that's so, a big mistake. Yeah, so what recourse does she have if there's no written contract, no signed contract? She gave him money in reliance on you know, him performing services. Perhaps she wrote a note on the check. Um, she certainly has the texts. So she does have some evidence that this money was exchanged for performance of services. So I, I think she has some protection. And I think she could certainly talk to the police about it, because I really think it's criminal. But again, they're probably going to say it's civil. And then and then she can get with an attorney. That's true. She does have the, the canceled check. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, Well, that's really good information, Kelly. Good business practice from a consumer standpoint. Mike, what do you say? I think she doesn't want this guy to work on her pool. So somehow she's got to get her money back, but she doesn't want to um, have him do the work because he doesn't seem to be responsible. In fact, as Kelly said, he's probably criminal. I think Kelly's right on. You, You go to the police, they're always interested in scams. At least that's been my experience. If there's somebody who's systematically fleecing people in the community, the police are going to be interested. So maybe you go to the police and you spin it that way. You know, I think this guy's scamming people. It's interesting she still has his phone number. You know, if it were truly a scam, it probably would be a burner phone where, you know, there was no back and forth. So, you know, somehow he's still out there. He's still at that number. That's something if she didn't want to follow up herself, I mean, the police might help her there. You know, this is this is not that unusual. At least that's been my experience. It's often not at that amount of money, but you know, there's a lot of people who just unfortunately are out there taking advantage of folks who who need help. I don't think she should feel at all guilty about going after the money because if she doesn't dissuade this guy from doing it this time, he's going to do it to somebody else. 
So maybe she can think of it that way. I'm not sensing too much compassion for him, even after what the listener said about she feels guilty pursuing the money from someone who is less financially secure than her. She doesn't know that. That's, that's not mean, swaying either no. one of you? Oh, no. Oh, gosh, no. no. no, 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 no. <laughs> no. This, is, this is thievery. This is thievery. <laughs> Just, it shouldn't stand. That issue is more the listener's issue <laughs> than it is about this supposed tradesman. And I agree with Mike. The chances are very good that he's done this to others, even if he's quote unquote legitimate. So, and other people that may not have the wherewithal that she has. So I, I, I think she's, obviously she's not going to use him because she's contacted somebody else, but she needs to go after him. And like I said, I think the police may not want to be involved. So then she can either try to handle it herself. And I didn't mention, but in most you know jurisdictions, there are small claims courts. So you know she could send him a letter, certified letter, give him a brief period of time to get her money, and it should be, you know, by certified or cashier's check to make sure that it's really the money's really there. And if that doesn't work, she can certainly take him to small claims court herself if she wants or or hire an attorney um and she also should be in touch with the better business bureau and you know whatever state organizations there are a number of steps she can take um which i know takes a lot of time but really could help others not end up in the same position as herself yeah that is a lot of money in my estimation oh gosh yeah. 1500 yeah, bucks sure sure yeah, yeah. Now, I'm assuming that this guy would have to have a business license through the city, correct? Unless he was some... Yeah, I don't know how that works in the area. I mean, I've lived in the Mountain West, and Las Cruces is sort of on the same uh, longitude. Um, And, you know, it's... You you gotta you gotta be licensed to do these things. Um, Although there is... There are a lot of fly-by-night outfits... um, you know, another thing, and Kelly brought this up, is you can really go after his reputation. If he is, in fact, doing this and he's legitimate as a tradesman, you can go after his reputation. You can go to the Better Business Bureau. But one thing that tends to be used a lot out west, I don't know if it's used that much here in the east, is Angie's List. So Angie's List yeah. is a pretty good resource for people who want to find a tradesman who can do something and then get a sense of the quality of their work and if you and tradesmen who care are really protective of their reputation on angie's list and you can go after that yeah because people really pay attention to reviews and recommendations they do i think we're going to do a show about that as well yeah yeah Yeah. i mean that's that's how i i don't hire anybody unless usually they're personally recommended but i also look online and even buying you know my son just wanted to get a bed for his room and you know we looked online he picked one out but i said hey let's let's look at the recommendations let's let's see what's out there mm-hmm. okay well that was very helpful and i hope you get your money back another scenario after the break stick with us Welcome back to Ethics and Etiquette. We're on to our second scenario today, and our topic is homeownership. A couple I know makes a living buying foreclosed houses at auctions, fixing them up, then renting them. And just parenthetically, this scenario took place before the moratorium on foreclosures because of COVID. 
For one of the foreclosures, the previous owner had walked away from the house, leaving all of her belongings there, not unusual in foreclosed homes. She subsequently could not be located. Everything, to include clothing, kitchen supplies, furniture, curtains, books, etc., was left in the house. By rights, it all belonged to the new owners, and they could dispose of it as they wished. But in sorting through the contents of the house, they found a box of baby memorabilia and scrapbooks containing childhood photographs of the previous owner and her daughter. Very personal stuff. Does the new owner have an ethical obligation to try and find the previous owner and return the photo albums and memorabilia? Or is this quote, just business, and can they pitch it in the dumpster with all the other unwanted items? Mike, I'm going to go to you first. What do you think? Yeah, I think you make a you make a legitimate effort to find that previous owner, and you get an address, and you just consider it part of your business cost. You go down to UPS, you put it all in a box, and you send it to whatever that address is, if, if you can figure that out. If not, just set it aside. You know, maybe maybe something comes up down the line where you can locate the previous owner. But when you have a situation like this, you have to imagine that whoever owned that home before, their life blew up. Something went sideways. Could have been could have been loss of a job, could have been a break in a personal relationship. Unfortunately it could have been an issue of addiction, something like that. But when you walk away from an entire life like that, something went horribly wrong. And so this could be a a very important step for that person to sort of rebuild their life, to have those important uh, artifacts and memories back. So I think the new owner, you know, a lot of, I, I just think the new owner would feel much better about him or herself if they made a legitimate effort to get it back to that person whose life just came apart at the seams. Yeah, the exposure I've had to people who buy foreclosed homes is you're right the owner's life just goes sideways somehow there's either a emotional or psychological issue and um, you know they lose their home and it's very sad what do you think Kelly yeah I agree Um, sometimes there's a divorce there's a death in the family as you said there's mental health issues or substance abuse Um, it's very sad and I agree with Mike wholeheartedly the only thing I'd say is You know, this is their business, the folks that handle these foreclosures and, you know, house flipping or fixing them up and renting them. And this is how they support themselves. So I'm sure part of their model is reselling these abandoned items, but it should not include personal items. But you got to be, I think they have to be careful in how they handle this because no good deed goes unpunished, right? (laughs) So if if they get right on it and contact this um, prior owner, you know, they could have the owner after them. Well, what about my table? And uh, what about the picture on the wall? And what about, you know, and and you get into and maybe even some type of a legal dispute. So I would never throw the items out. But I would recommend that they have their garage sale, um, their estate auction, or they donate the house items get that all cleared out with the exception of the personal items that they've set aside. And at that point in time, once that's done, you know, the the house is obviously, uh, the deed is in their names. Once that stuff is taken care of, then they can reach out to this owner and um, say, hey, we have these items, where can we send them? And if there's no response, I agree with Mike, you set them aside, you put them in a safe place and 
you know, unless they're just massive in size, I would try to hold on to them maybe every year or two, see if you can locate the person, or at least if the person reaches out to you and they should be able to find you based on public records, you would be able to turn the items over to them. So I'm hearing you both say you make a legitimate effort to return these personal items to the previous owner once ownership of the house is established. Yeah, that's where I'm coming from. I I would be a little careful as far as the timing of it, but Mm -hmm. I... Yeah, absolutely. I think you've got to make every effort uh, because you want to treat others as you want to be treated. Mm-hmm. That's a great point on your timing, Kelly. I think that's the way to play it. And, and you know, my one of my sons used to work for uh, a um, property manager, and he ended up being the guy with the truck who went and emptied out houses that had been abandoned or someone had been evicted or whatever the case might be. And and there usually was not that much of value in the place. And what was there was not something you really wanted to worry about getting any money out of. Uh, But I still think that getting personal, very personal things and and things that shape memory are, are very important. The woman who owned this house, she was a bit of a shopaholic and she had a lot of nice stuff. In fact, maybe it was the shopaholicness. Maybe that was her sideways thing, Mike, that drove yeah, her into bankruptcy. Yeah. She had a lot of nice stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I well. can tell you the outcome of this story. Oh, Cause, good. Yay. Because I know the person who bought the house. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested. <laughs> so this person was very touched by this box of personal memorabilia, and she couldn't throw it in the dumpster. So she set it aside. And she did some investigating on online to try to locate the owner. I think she did get an email or a phone number for the previous owner, but the previous owner never returned her calls. So finally, she was able to locate the ex-husband of the previous owner. They had a mutual friend on Facebook, and that's how she reached out to him. And she explained the situation that she had this box of uh, baby and childhood memorabilia of his child. And did he want it? And he, in fact, did want it. And they met and exchanged the box of stuff. And then a few months later, the daughter, who is an adult by now, wrote my sister and thanked her for setting that stuff aside and making an effort to get it back to her. It meant a lot to her. So it had a nice ending. Good for her. I mean, she really knocked herself out. Thanks to both of you. Stick with us. More coming after the break. Welcome back to Ethics and Etiquette. We're on to our third scenario today. You find out that the house you wish to purchase in a lovely area of town is in a school district that has been dramatically gerrymandered, so it now includes a large downtown government-subsidized housing project. Does this affect your decision to purchase the house? Should it? Kelly, what do you think? I think when you purchase a house, you have to consider everything. Um, it's a huge financial commitment. It's a huge financial decision. Often it's the biggest financial investment an individual will make in their lives. So yeah, I think you have to consider everything. And it really depends on your goals with regard to the house and also your financial situation. For example, do you have children? If you have children, are you comfortable having the children go to a school that may not be that strong? It's It's unclear to me what bringing in this government-subsidized housing project means. If it doesn't mean anything and your school district is strong and highly rated, 
who cares? However, if the school district is not well-rated, that affects resale value. I don't know whether that has to do with, you know, the government subsidized housing project or not. But my focus would be how good are the schools and how are they rated? Because that's going to affect my investment. And also, if I have children, I want to be in a strong school district. Or if I'm if I don't care about that, if I have money and I'm going to send my kids to private schools, then that's not a consideration. So I guess to be clear, if money is no issue and you're not concerned about resale, and you're not concerned about the schools, either because you don't have children or because you're going to send them to private school, buy the house. Sure. You know, if if money is any concern at all, as it is for most of us when it comes to a major purchase, I think you have to be careful and protect yourself financially and look at all issues. And, And we've kind of, I think we've talked about this before, you have to look at you know, how long am I planning on being in the house? What am I purchasing the house for? Is it to just live in and enjoy? Is it an investment? Do I have children? Um, one of the things we've talked about when you purchase a house is is checking the sex offender registry. If there's a sex offender nearby, I'm not buying the house. You know, that that those are my values, whether I have kids or not. Um, others may feel differently. The the fact that the subsidized housing project is is in the school district doesn't bother me at all. In fact, it could be a positive because, you know, I would want my kids to be exposed to diversity, but only if the school district's strong. Because I don't, you know, none of us want our kids to go to subpar schools. So those are some big ifs you you mentioned there. If money's not an issue and if you can send your kids to a private school. and Yeah, I mean, because when you purchase a house, uh, at least, you know, I've moved around a lot my whole life. So my focus is always resale. You know, and obviously you don't want to lose money. I mean, you want to, ideally, you want to purchase a home that you can sell later for more than what you bought it for in a short period of time. Right. So, Mike, what do you think? Next time I have a big life decision, I'm just calling Kelly. (laughs) Me too. Um, (laughs) She has a wealth of information. (laughs) I I don't have have a lot to say. I I, I mean... No, I, Mike, I am I am like, my husband and I joke, we are like pros at buying high and selling low. So I oh, sort okay. of, uh, okay. oh. So that, that, that's I mean, not how it's supposed to be, Kelly. I know. You also and do I that in the tried stock to market, follow... Kelly? Is that sort of your pattern? Yeah, that's why you guys are retired and I'm not. Oh, okay, okay. I'm beginning to see how this shapes out. Okay, yeah, yeah. Maybe I don't go to you for big decisions then. No, I think. Kelly's Kelly's got it. You've got you got two things at play here. You have your your future financial health and let's assume you have kids. You have the development of those children. So I would put development of those children as the most important thing in your life. Uh, hopefully that's the case and your finances after that, but both are important and you know, real estate agents have an interesting way of kind of not telling you everything that you need to know. So you've got to do your homework. You've got to look around. You've got to figure it out. You got to, it often is presented, a house is often presented in such a way that it, it just seems perfect until you look a little more closely. And um, I think it... You, you, so do, it's, do your it's, due it's, diligence. Yeah, and it's, it's almost unethical for you as an individual. If Let's assume that... These, this was the worst school district in town because of the way in which it was drawn on the map. You have an ethical obligation to make the decision, the best decision for your kids. 
So if sending them to that school is not going to benefit them in their development and your kind of future as a family, then I think you have an ethical obligation, if you have the option, to go to a place where they're going to be better served and they will prosper. So so children, number one priority, yeah. followed by finances. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's how yeah. we always bought houses. We looked at the district. We looked at proximity to the schools so that we wouldn't, you know, we lived in a couple places where I spent so much time sitting in the car in traffic, driving kids to and from. And at, that's a killer on quality of life. Yeah, at their expense and at my expense. And uh, and also one could argue their safety. Later, as I guess we got smarter, which is always a good thing. You know, you looked at the school district you wanted your kids to be in and then where you were in relation to the school based on time of travel. Okay, well, this happened to me, so I can tell you how it all worked out. All right, Marna. We had our heart set on this lovely home in a nice neighborhood, in a nice part of town, and we were doing our due diligence. We went to the elementary school, and it was a very, very old school. As we were walking around, I I thought, man, this this place is so old. What a dump. And then I looked a little closer, and although it was old, it was not a dump. It was very well taken care of. The walls were freshly painted. The floors were waxed. Everything was nice and neat. The principal was lovely. She made an effort to meet my children and make sure they felt welcome. I considered the inclusion of the project in the district. When it was a very good district, by the way, Kelly, the school's were very good. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought that I wanted my kids to be exposed to diversity. I mean, they they were military kids, so they were anyway. But I felt I can't pad their lives forever, so let's do this. And we ended up buying the house. And a postscript to that is I used to volunteer in my son's classroom. He was in second grade, and I was the reading tutor. And so a lot of the students I tutored were from the projects because they weren't getting a lot of exposure to reading at home. And there were maybe three kids per class from the projects, and they were just enchanting. I became so fond of those little kids. And in the end, I was the one who was blessed because I had the exposure of uh, being able to work with them on their reading. So it all worked out. It was positive all the way around. That's great. So dare I ask how you, how the house sold when you went to move? It didn't sell right away. We rented it, and then two years later, we sold it. Occasionally a tough sell because there were elementary schools in the same town that were brand new. Right, right. So, yeah, when you compare that. But I, I did learn that the physical plant of a school has almost no bearing on the quality of the education. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, who cares about the physical infrastructure, you know, unless it's just crumbling? That doesn't matter. It's... It's the people, um, and it's the education. And if, if the school district is, is well-rated, you know, that, that's what matters. At this school, it was so old that some of the teachers had actually gone to elementary school there. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> so it was pretty darn old. But it was well cared for. It was well cared for. They had a custodian there who just took super good care of the place. So it was, it was good, and it was a real eye-opening experience for me and a good lesson for me to pass on to the two kids. Oh, that's great. We'll be right back with some end notes.
Welcome back to Ethics and Etiquette and Notes. This is the part of our show where we like to leave you with something to think about for the coming week. It may or may not be related to our topic this week. I'll start with you, Kelly. Thanks, Marna. I think today's scenarios were really interesting. And I think the moral of the story with regard to them is that the buyer should beware. So caveat emptor, buyer beware. It's each of our responsibility to protect ourselves and perform due diligence with any types of transactions, whether it be you're getting someone to repair your pool, your home, your car, you're selling your car, you're selling your house, you're buying a house. We have to be careful, do our research, perform due diligence, and it's difficult and time-consuming, but so worth it. That is a great lesson for all of us to remind ourselves of due diligence and buyer beware. And also I would add, trust your gut. Yes, trust, but verify. (laughs) Trust, but verify. Good. Yeah, always a good watchword. That's great. Yes. And my end note is I want to give a shout out to the class of 2020, both high school and college. I always thought it would be so cool to be in the class of 2020, just because of 2020 vision and all that. And look what they got. Doesn't seem fair. My nephew and my cousin's kids were seniors this year in high school. And so they missed all the rites of passage, such as proms and graduations that we associate with senior year. They all did participate in drive through degree conferral and graduation parades, which I watched on live stream. And interestingly, the parades were so popular in the community that they're thinking about doing them every year. So hats off to you guys, class of 2020. And I want to get personal a little bit here. Some of you may or may not know that Kelly and I went to college together back in the 80s, and she was a year older than me. It was her graduation weekend, and she and the other seniors were preparing to finish their time as students. And I hadn't prepared myself emotionally for their departure, and it really blindsided me. The grief was, it was like a gut punch. And this was pre-internet, pre-cell phone, and there was a chance that we'd never see each other again. In fact, in the intervening years, I think Kelly and I saw each other twice. I hadn't had a chance to say goodbye. This year's college class didn't get a chance to say goodbye either. They left after spring break and never came back. So no goodbyes to their professors or friends or the place. I feel for them, and I want to take a moment to honor them for their optimism and resolve in the face of this disappointment. Good job, class of 2020. Wow, that was great, Marna. Thank you. Yeah, here, here. <laughs> Beautifully said. I bet you didn't know that, Kelly. That I didn't. How bummed I didn't. out! How bummed out I, had, I was. <laughs> I had no idea. I remember that weekend so clearly, though. So much fun. Yeah. And I, I do remember. I can't believe I'm going to say this um, out loud, but I am not a crier. And I remember driving home from Williamsburg uh, to the Philadelphia area, and pretty much crying the entire trip, which. Is it t- so unlike me. I, it I is mean, unlike you, but I can totally I mean, understand it. I cry about once every 10 years. And <laughs> I mean, and my, my younger sister was with me, and uh, she was like, what is going on? <laughs> I think she was stunned. She was about to start college yeah. herself. I uh, wonder if the class of 2020 has had their good cry. It definitely well, helps. Yeah. I think they have lived something that none of us could imagine, and... Uh, I just got graduation announcements from two favorite young cousins yesterday. One's a senior in college, one's a senior in high school. 
And it just, it really hit me hard because they're such bright, sharp young people and they don't get those things you're talking about, Marna. So beautiful, beautiful comment. And I'm so impressed with, with their resilience and how they're handling this with such maturity and grace. It's, it's inspiring. What about you? Do you have a similar incident to tell us about or a question to pose? Leave us a comment or a voicemail. You can do both at our website, www.ethicsandetiquette.com. If you want to support what we're doing, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and recommend Ethics and Etiquette to your friends and family. For Kelly Halligan Zimmerman and Mike Derrick, I'm Marna Ashburn, and this is Ethics and Etiquette, a thought-provoking dialogue about everyday dilemmas. Thanks for being with us this week, and please join us again next week for an all-new episode. See you then.